Hey, welcome to the Rusty George Podcast. So glad to have you here. Today, I'm so excited about our guest, Carrie Newhoff. Uh, The last name is spelled N-I-E-U-W-H-O-F. And you might be asking, where in the world does that come from? And the answer is Canada. So for those of you who have not heard of Carrie Newhoff, you're missing out. He's one of the top leadership experts out there who has built an entire business around the model of how can I help? That's a concept we talk a lot about at our real life campuses. And we just want them to be a place where we can help our leaders excel at what it is they do and succeed at all levels of leadership. And Carrie is certainly one of those doing that. So in our conversation today, we get a chance to ask him about his latest book, which is Didn't See It Coming, which is just some great stuff on things that all leaders face, though we think that'll never happen to us. And we also talk a little bit about the area of leadership, where he sees that going, 200 plus podcasts into his journey of recording great content for leaders. We get to ask, what has he learned? What's the top three leadership lessons he's found? And we just have some really interesting dialogue about the future of church leadership. And not just for churches, but all levels of leadership. So I can't wait for you to hear this. Make sure that you take a moment and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done that already. And after you're done listening to it, share it with somebody else. I think it'll be a benefit to them as well. So without further ado, my conversation with Carrie Newhoff. Hey, Carrie, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for for joining me. Uh, you have been uh, just an inspiration to me for years, and to consider you a friend over the past few years has been a real treat to me. So for those who don't know who you are, which I think there's only seven people on the planet, but if they don't know who you are, would you just give us a brief bio about you and start with the uh, the heritage of your last name? <laughs> I was going to say I'm Rusty's friend. Like, what more of an intro do you need than that, right? Right. Uh, yeah, you know, a lot of people have no idea what it is, or uh, certainly, you know how to tell a podcast listener from a blog reader? How's that? All the podcast listeners know how to pronounce it. So when I get, how do you pronounce your last name? I know they've never subscribed to my leadership podcast, which is always <laughs> a, a fun test. Anyway, it's uh, Dutch originally. Both my parents are Dutch immigrants to Canada. I'm Canadian. I live north of Toronto, and my mom came over when she was 11. Her name was Nap, N-A-P as in go to sleep, which I really enjoy. And my Mm -hmm. dad's a Newhoff, and Newhoff literally means new court or new garden. But originally, they think it was German. So I was in a German monastery. This sounds like something you would make up a number of years ago, speaking in Europe. And I was in Germany in this, I don't even know the town, and they bring out these glasses, and it's Neuhoff beer. Now, we weren't drinking beer at lunch, but it was like, what is this? And that was probably the original version of my name. So it probably originally had two Fs, not one. And it was probably N-E-U-H-O-F-F. But anyway, the spelling is N-I-E-U-W-H-O-F. And what was so funny, we brought my kids to Holland for the first time when they were still in high school. And we're driving around Holland, and new is simply the word new in Holland. And everywhere you go on every billboard, it's like new car, new house, new dress, new shirt, new design, new style. And so the the word is plastered all over Holland, and the kids are like, finally, we fit in. So they were were pretty excited (laughs) about that. Well, that's good for them. That's great. Yeah. All right. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I'm... um, 
I'm a pastor, founding pastor of Conexus Church north of Toronto, former lawyer uh, from the time I was a kid, wanted to be a lawyer, and got a very circuitous path into ministry. I, As a teenager, I worked at a radio station. Then I decided to go to law school after all, not take on radio as a career, which was probably a good move. And uh, in the middle of law school, experienced a call to ministry, went to seminary after I uh, got called to the bar uh, in for, for law, and then ended up at three little churches. It was 24 years ago, and those churches are 10 minutes from my house today, and through a long, convoluted history of events, I'm still hanging out with some of those same people I started with 24 years ago. So it's been a great, great journey. Wow, that's fantastic. So you you made this transition to teaching pastor at your church, which frees you up to do much more leadership type of things and to yeah. do, obviously, the podcast and the blog. But but your impact on leaders has grown. How'd you get started in that for anybody out there that's thinking about that or might be yeah, interested yeah, yeah. in that? I mean, you kind of started well, with just conversations, right? Yeah, it was a hobby. Um, really, I've always had a passion for the wider church and for sort of the macro issues. So uh, I, it, it's funny because I just, I just want to say one thing. I became the founding pastor, not the lead pastor, four years ago, partly because I'm fascinated by what I see as a succession crisis happening across America, that some of us who started things, as I did with Conexus, we stay around too long, and soon we lose our effectiveness. So I had turned 50 three and a half years ago, decided that I was going to go while things were still healthy before the patient started to die or get sick and handed off the church strong to my successor, who's only made it stronger. But that also coincidentally freed the stuff up. So yeah, I mean, I heard someone say last week, wow, you know, you've just rocketed onto the scene in the last few years, but let me take you back. So when we were part of these three little churches 24 years ago, and I came up here, average attendance of these churches of 6, 14, and 23, we mm. started growing almost overnight. So they hadn't grown in three decades. They were really on life support. I was a student. I came cheap. I was a seminary student. So they're like, oh, we can afford him. But by the grace of God, we started to grow almost overnight. And we were in a rapidly decli- declining mainline denomination. So when a church with a young leader starts to grow word spreads, not all over the U.S. or Canada, but, you know, within a 20-mile radius, people take notice. So I started to get requests, phone calls back then, or emails, saying, hey, uh, would you come and talk to our elder board? Because there were no staff, these were tiny churches, but our elder board about what's happening. So I would get into my car at night after dinner, drive an hour out of town to these little churches that invited me. I would spend an evening with their elders and tell them everything that we were doing, They would tell me it was dumb and would never work, and they would maybe never pay me or give me, you know, a a gas gift card for $25, and I'd drive home. So that's how my illustrious speaking consulting career started. And for years, it was just that. It was just being invited to local things and then regional things. And I'm not kidding. I mean, I wish <laughs> I wish there were tape recorders because nobody believes this. But like I sat on a national evangelism committee for our denomination for a decade, would drive down to Toronto, be in meetings, and they would say, so your church is like exploding. It's growing. What's going on? And so I'd tell them, and literally everything I said was, ah, yeah, but that, that only works in, in your setting, or that doesn't, that's not going to work anywhere else. And I'd be like, my setting, have you been to my church? It's surrounded by farmer's fields. We have cattle as neighbors. Like, 
if it's going to work where we are, it will work in Toronto. It'll work in Vancouver. It'll, but nobody listened. And I just never gave up. And then I started blogging seriously about six years ago. I've had a blog for over a decade, but seriously about six years ago to leaders thinking, well, maybe some of this stuff would help. And then it just kind of exploded from there. Okay. So here's what I'm really fascinated by. You have talked to some amazing leaders over your time. You have interviewed some of the best pastors, business leaders, authors out there. Is there maybe a top two or three things of learning from you that you say, boy, this seems to be a common theme, a common thread that everybody has that you kind of go, wow, I, I never saw this going in, but now I see this as being a great leadership learning. Yeah, surprisingly, because one of the questions you always get when you get access to, to incredible leaders is, what are they really like? The best ones are incredibly humble. Like, like really surprisingly humble. When you're with them, they're fully focused. They're not checking their phones. They know your name, even if you haven't spent a lot of time with them. And they're interested in you as a person. And they're not, they're not full of themselves. Now, I've met a few leaders who are full of themselves. They're not going to be repeat guests. They're not going to be people I spend, you know, an inordinate amount of time with. But the, the vast majority of leaders I've met have a humility because I think you reach a certain level of success where unless you're a raging narcissist, you kind of realize that there is some grace and some providence involved in this. Uh, the other thing I would say is incredible discipline. Uh, one of my favorite all-time favorite leadership books is Greg McEwen's Essentialism. And they have uh, an inspiring and mind-numbing ability to say no and to eliminate things from their life. Like mm. they, 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 have, they have eliminated so many distractions. That means that they can be fully focused on those two or three things that get them the most leverage in life and leadership. So they tend, I mean, they've got a million demands on their time, but they've narrowed it down to the two or three things that matter the most. So I'd say those are two. And then uh, a lot of resilience, um, I, I had this theory when I was a young leader driving around to churches at night that the really successful people didn't have any challenges, and that's why they were successful. I don't know why that, where that came from, or it was not, a, not an accurate belief, but as I've gotten to know some of these leaders that you're hinting at, their heartbreak stories would rival anybody's. You, mm -hmm. you look at the difficulties, the personal difficulties, the relational stuff they've had to navigate. I'm not talking about necessarily moral failure or marriage breakdown. I'm just talking about like, this wasn't all up and to the right. This was a really difficult personal journey. And they have the ability to bounce back. They didn't quit. And, you know, of course, as things get larger, the pressure gets greater. So... You know, one misstep and a whole lot of stuff comes crashing down, not just a little bit, but a lot. And so those would be the things like their, their incredible humility and their presence, uh, an ability to say no and focus on what matters most to do less and accomplish far more. And then resilience. I would say those are the three things that I see again and again. You know, that resilience thing, you and I have talked about this many times, but yeah. I think leaders have this misconception sometimes that if it's all up and to the right, then it's being blessed by God. And if it's not, then God has removed his hand of blessing. We kind of over-spiritualize things that way. 
I mean, the New Testament certainly doesn't show us that. We see the life of Paul, much of his great work happened in prison. Why do you think we as leaders just constantly keep going back to that? If it's not successful, we're out of God's graces or we've done something wrong. Uh, that's a great question. I think some of that, Rusty, probably is related to the American dream and the American psyche. This idea that everything has to be bigger to be better. And now, listen, I'm, I'm on the favor of if it can be bigger and we can reach more people, I will sign up for that all day long. At my heart, I'm a utilitarian. The greatest good for the greatest number. But that is, I was, I was doing another interview earlier today with a writer who's writing a book on some resilience and things like that. And he, you know, there, was a, there have been seasons where our church wasn't growing. There's a season where we launched Conexus at 900 people, and through my exceptional leadership skills, I grew it to 400. And I remember 18 months after launch, watching our church basically go up in flames in, in front of me, I was, first of all, paralyzed by the thought that this may not work, and secondly, that that maybe uh, I needed to leave. Maybe I was the problem. Now, I didn't know it would go on to be four times the size. I didn't, I didn't know any of that. Like, I had no idea. But I think, I think there's that resilience. And even with the blog and the podcast, which I've, you know, are, have become fairly well known in the leadership space, it's weird because I haven't, I think perseverance and sticking through. Now, I know, I know that people find it helpful. Uh, but we were, we had a good growth year last year in 2018 on the blog, but like not quite where I wanted it to be. Facebook changed the algorithm at the beginning of 2018, which dropped organic traffic and even paid traffic mm. off a cliff. Like I'm talking 75%. So I changed my strategy, started emailing five or six times a week to the, the tens of thousands of leaders who subscribe to my email list. And that sort of moved traffic in the right direction. But, you know, it wasn't like, uh, I think we were up 20% on the blog or something last year. I made no changes at all, none. Doing exactly what I was three months ago, all of a sudden traffic's up 60% year over year. Hmm. And I have no idea why. Like there's no, there, unless I'm missing something, there is no cause and effect. And all I can say is why I just didn't quit. And mm. it seemed to be helpful. And we were monitoring feedback from people who, who were saying, thank you for these articles. It's really helpful. I had a strategy that was sustainable. They're not long emails. They're short. But then all of a sudden, you know, 60% more people show up on a blog that is six years old. Where does that come from? I don't know. But I do know that there was a don't quit in that. And you see that in, in a lot of leaders and in, in resilience. A lot of that is just like, yeah, I'm just not going to give up. Now, you can give up on... On there are times where you should give up, right? If, if the patient is dead, uh, you can stop performing CPR at some point if you want. But uh, and that's a fine art to know when to quit and when not to. But let me ask you about um, you know you're doing church in Canada, and we've talked before about how Canada is kind of the uh, the canary in the cave. You've used that metaphor yeah. before. What are you seeing in the church in Canada that we could be prepared for in the U.S.? Well, the fallout's bad, I'll tell you, in a post-Christian culture. So we, and I'm not saying, I'm not making a pronouncement on this one way or the other, but we legalized same-sex marriage a decade before the United States Supreme Court ruled in that favor. Um, divorce was liberalized here before, I think it was liberalized in the U.S., 
So a lot of the cultural issues that you're navigating, we're a bit of a hybrid between Europe, if you want to look at the macro, Europe and America. So we're very much like America. If you were in Ontario, you could convince yourself you were in Michigan. Like there's not a big difference other than our accents, I suppose. But uh, beyond that, we're, we're in between. And so I, I just look at like this community that I'm in where I started 24 years ago. There are two or three Christian churches left out of 20, over 20. So all these little churches, and you, you, you drive through rural America, there's little churches everywhere. A lot of those will be gone. In the same way that the independent bookstores, who are now enjoying a bit of a resurgence, but there was a time where all the independent bookstores just got wiped out. And, you know, Starbucks wiped out a whole lot of independent coffee shops, and now independent coffee shops are making a bit of a resurgence. Amazon is really doing a dent to malls. So you're going to see that. Post-Christianity is going to reduce the number of churches. And I, I don't know whether that's bottomed out yet Yet in the United States. It's probably going to eliminate some denominations where, hold. I mean, most denominations, seminaries are noticing a big decline over what they have. And I mean, we're at the point where I, I'm not going to name names, but I mean, there are some denominations here that are producing six graduates a year nationally. Because people just aren't signing up for ministry. Also, ministry is becoming unaffordable. Even if you underpay your staff, which tends to be a trend in the church world, I mean, if you're going to come up with $40,000 a year, you got a church of 30 people, they may not have that money. And so uh, it's it's going to be radically reimagined. And I think what's, what's happened in Canada that is happening in the United States is after a culture becomes post-Christian, nominal Christianity still sticks around, and it becomes about institutional loyalty. Well, Rusty, we can't let this thing go down on our watch, right? Mm-hmm. We, just, we just have to stay loyal. But it becomes about preserving the institution or the organization more than it does about moving the mission forward. Right. Uh, that has a shelf life. And that is going to expire. And I think, you know, I travel like you do across the U.S. I I think you will see many of those churches, the tide is irreversible. Like it's over because they lost their mission, that they love their method. They love the way they do church more than they love the mission. And so I think you're going to see those churches disappear. I was with, at dinner last week in Atlanta with a church leader. I won't name him, but but you would know his name. He's a mutual friend. And uh, he was asking me for what I saw. And I said, you know what it feels like increasingly in America? You know, in and I don't know whether you have this in California, but we certainly have it in other areas of the country, where in the spring, if the snow melts off, you see a whole bunch of dead grass in a field, in a meadow. And the grass is all brown, and maybe there's a little bit of, you know, wilting grass there, but it's pretty much dead. But then underneath that are little shoots of green popping up. And I think that's a metaphor for what the church in America is going to be like, that a lot more things that were alive are dying, but there's all these little green shoots. There are church plants. There are churches that are revitalizing. There's a couple of seminaries that are getting it right. They're, they're, you know, the word of God renews itself and the people of God renew themselves. So I think we're starting to see those little sprigs of hope, but I I would expect uh, more decline and more death. And... I think that's partly what all the outrage is about. When you look at how angry so many Christians seem to be, I think a lot of that is they're dying. 
All these things are now out of their control. Like they don't, they don't, you can't control culture. You can't, maybe you think, oh, you know, we can control the Supreme Court. Well, maybe you can make an appointment, but ultimately you're not going to reverse. Like if, if, if the gospel doesn't live in people's hearts at the end of the day, in 330 million American hearts, it's not going to live in the culture. Mm-hmm. But where it gets renewed in the hearts of the people, it will get renewed in the culture. So in many ways, I think <laughs> the battle is over for the culture wars, and the Christianity, you know, cause of Christianity didn't win that one. doesn't mean the gospel's dead. It just means it's going to go underground and resurface in fresh ways. Well, and there's so much there we could unpack. Uh, I think about a line I heard a pastor say one time, and that is, we're fighting battles we've already lost. Yeah. We're, we're constantly consumed with Ten Commandments on the school walls and prayer in school and uh, different Supreme Court acts, when really, let's move on to what you know is underneath, what matters most, our mission. And I think about the first church and how they started as outcasts and you fast forward 300 years, and now suddenly it's a it's a legalized religion and demanded upon everybody through Constantine. Mm-hmm. So if we're really going to change culture, it has to start uh, from within. So I want to I want to transition a little bit into into your latest book, which is fantastic. Didn't see it coming, and these are seven things that kind of sneak up on all people, all leaders, not just pastors. Uh, but certainly you lived this as a pastor. Would you tell our listeners these seven things and maybe a few things that didn't make the cut? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's seven things that just sneak up on leaders and take us out when we're not looking. So things like cynicism, moral compromise, disconnection, irrelevance, pride, um, what else? Burnout. And probably my favorite that nobody else seems to be their favorite, emptiness. So you get to the top, but you still feel empty. What is that? Uh, What didn't make it? Irrelevance didn't, oh no, irrelevance made it. But ineffectiveness, there's a certain level of uh, time where you're doing the same thing over and over again, but you're just becoming less and less effective. Think of the salesperson who is breaking records in their 20s, who's now 45, going, it's just not like it used to be, or the company that hit its epoch and is now in stages of decline, or even the death rattle. Like, how do you get ineffective that way? Uh, yeah, there's probably some others, that, but that, that's one that's top of mind that didn't make the cut. What have you been surprised about from the result of the book, the reaction people are having? What's the feedback you're getting that maybe you didn't see coming? Pardon the pun. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, there's definitely stuff. So the resonance that the section on cynicism had has really blown me away, which means one of two things, Rusty, either since it's the first section of the book, the first 50 pages, people only read 50 pages, and that's what they're commenting on. <laughs> Wait, that's cynical. Don't say that. Um, so so there's that possibility. No, people have read the book, but it's this, this, I think we live in a very cynical age, and nobody is really, I've, I've asked people, like, what's your go-to book on cynicism? And the number one answer is about 10 seconds of silence. And then people go, (laughs) I don't have one. And so I think it kind of spoke into a bit of a vacuum, and we live in a pretty cynical age. And the the surprise with cynicism is nobody sets out to be cynical, but we all kind of get there. Mm -hmm. And often in our early to mid-30s, actually what I'm learning is younger. And here's another big surprise. When I wrote the book, this is nowhere in the copy, 
but I just assumed that men were cynical and women were not. Nope. Uh, I've had so many women say, thank you for calling that out in me. Uh, this one's an all skate. Everybody mm. appears to be cynical. So those were a couple of surprises that came out of the book. Yeah, it's really a defense mechanism for us, isn't it? We just we get jaded, we get cynical, we get yeah. burnt enough. We just say, you know what? I'm done with all this. And I think social media has kind of escalated that for all of us because now we're privy to everybody's successes and looking at our own failures, don't you think? Oh, 100%. And Solomon diagnosed us, uh, diagnosed that accurately 3,000 years ago uh, because he said that the root of cynicism is knowledge. He says, mm-hmm. with much knowledge comes much sorrow. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. So you think about the explosion of knowledge in our culture. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, and you and I at this stage remember when news used to be curated for 30 minutes a night at 6.30 p.m. by three major networks and three trusted anchors. And you might have your favorite. You might like Peter Jennings over Tom Brokaw or whatever. But they basically curated the news, and that's all you needed to know. And now every time you look at your phone, every time you look away from your phone, every time you're in a restaurant, they've got CNN or Fox News on, and news just bombards us. And then you know way more. Think about how even 100 years ago, your grandparents may have only traveled 40 miles from their birthplace their entire life. And so you know one blacksmith and one carpenter, and you know the grocer, And everybody's in your circle. Well, now we have 300 friends and we feel desperately alone or 3,000 friends. And so that kind of knowledge, I mean, this actually is a biblical insight. That kind of knowledge creates cynicism because you, you end up like Solomon going, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And, and, and if you really want to get clarity on this, most of us were a lot happier when we were younger. So the question is, why were you so happy when you were younger? And I think the answer is because you were stupid. That's why you did you didn't know anything, right? You didn't know anything. It's like I didn't know that this is what leading a church would bring. I didn't know that this is what parenting was really like. I had no idea that my chosen profession that I sunk fifty thousand dollars worth of education into was such a rotten profession. Like I didn't know that. I had these idealized dreams, and those dreams get shattered. And then you're like, well, now what? Which is where the book picks up. Well, uh, that's so great because you're exactly right. You just, there's so much you don't know. So you're dumb enough to jump right in. And I think, you know, when we moved out to California 15 years ago, we just had all these, you know, ideals of what it's going to be like and uh, how wonderful it will be. And I don't know, about three weeks in, we're like, what in the world, you know? Well, wait a minute. I was, I was in San Diego for 36 hours last week. I'm sure it's perfect there. Listen, the weather was perfect when I was there, so it has no issues, right? Isn't that where oh, we always go, though, Rusty? Absolutely. Like, and the grass is always greener. And if I could get to San Diego, that'd be great. So anyway, yeah, we, we all, all my problems that. will melt away there. I know that. <laughs> the problem is, wherever I go, there I am. And I just bring all my <laughs> junk with me, right? All right. Yeah. Well, we got to wrap this up. So let me ask you, um, tell everybody a little bit about what your, you know, kind of your platform does that can help all mm-hmm. leaders and I think specifically about your high-impact leader course and the resources you guys provide, and how can they find you, and, and how sure. can they benefit from what it is you guys do? Well, the mission that pulls it all together is simply this idea that uh, what I do is I try to help people thrive in life and leadership. 
it's hard. You know, you don't want to survive. You don't just want to kind of limp through your 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond. You want to thrive. And so I think that's very possible. That's been part of my story after burning out 13 years ago. Bounce back, reclaim my optimism, and I think you move through life. And the goal is to get people more fresh and alive at 70 than they were at 60, more alive and vibrant at 60 than they were at 40, you know, that kind of thing. And and certainly even at 40, in a better place than you were at 25. Mm. And so I think that's very possible. I do that through a couple of primary means. The easiest way for free content is to go to leadlikeneverbefore.com. Just leadlikeneverbefore.com. That'll take you to my website. You can access my leadership podcast, which comes out six times a month. Um, so lots of leaders access content through that. And as you indicated, it's interviews with with key leaders from the business and the church space. And uh, previous guests have included Rusty George, mm. Andy Stanley, Francis Chan, um, Daniel Pink, Nancy Duarte, Patrick Lencioni, Brian Houston. So it's a, it's, a, it's a fun show. I love doing that. And then um, I also write a blog. So there's lots of free content on there. And that, again, can be accessed through leadlikeneverbefore.com. And then the book is called Didn't See It Coming. And you can find that at Amazon or wherever books are sold. Fantastic. Carrie, it's been a joy. Thank you for all you do for all leaders, but specifically ours today. Really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Rusty. Well, I hope that was as helpful for you as it was for me. I always learn when I listen and talk with Carrie. And I would encourage you to make sure you sign up for his podcast, which is Lead Like Never Before or CarrieNewhoff.com. If you have trouble spelling that last name, congratulations, you're in the club. Uh, but it's just uh, leadlikeneverbefore.com is where you'll find all of his intel as well. So thank you so much for listening. Please share this with somebody else, uh, specifically another leader that you serve with in the church and get this information out there to be helpful for everybody. Until then, we'll see you next time on the Rusty George podcast. <laughs>